0: Head to the slash merch.
1: Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today.
0: And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011.
1: So many great movies, so many great conversations, but it's a lot of work. Producing this show week after week does require a lot behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered.
0: Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions.
1: We had some great films in season eight that started their lives as books or plays, and you can find all of them on our Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals.
0: That's the site where listeners can find links to purchase all the source material behind the adapted films we have covered. From season one up through our current season.
1: For part of season eight, we had a series celebrating the 50th anniversary of films from 1968.
0: We talked about 2001 and 2010 for our Odyssey series, both adapted from Arthur C. Clarke's novels. Man, the second one was so much better than the first, right?
1: Don't you even get me started. (sighs) Need I bring up Under the Cherry Moon again?
0: Yes! Also, so
1: much better! <laughs> wait, wait, no! That's not what I... Uh,
0: <laughs> Planet of the Apes
1: kicked off its series based on the novel by Pierre Boulet. We covered Danger Diabolic and The Detective, adapted from novels for our 1968 crime films. Wait,
0: wasn't that The Detective the prequel to Die Hard?
1: They were both written by Roderick Thorpe, and yes, it's the same character in the books!
0: I can't believe they even asked Sinatra if he'd be in Die
1: Hard. That would have been yeah. weird. <sighs> Uh, Once Upon a Time in America was part of our Leone Once Upon a Time trilogy, adapted from Harry Gray's novel.
0: And we looked at 1968 Best Picture nominees The Lion in Winter, Rachel, Rachel, Romeo and Juliet, and Oliver.
1: We also had an Ingrid Bergman series with adaptations like Spellbound, For Whom the Bell Tolls, Murder on the Orient Express, and Gaslight.
0: We haven't talked about Gaslight.
1: Stop gaslighting me. <laughs> Dive deeper into these books
0: and more adapted films at thenextreelcom slash originals. Every purchase supports the podcast.
1: Get the full list of adaptations that we've covered on all the Next Real family of podcasts and start your next read today at thenextreelcom slash originals.
0: is the next reel everybody i'm pete Wright. And that there is andy nelson hey 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 and we spoil movies tonight on the show he made it through the long and deadly night everybody only to find out we're done in by romero's day of the dead first came the night then came the dawn now comes the most eagerly awaited day in horror film history george a romero's day of the dead We've been punished by the Creator. We visited a curse. Uh, Hello, is there anyone? There? Uh, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> I love when you start a show like that. <laughs> <laughs> I've been thinking about this movie, uh, Day of the Dead, and uh, this is—we're wrapping up our series on Romero's first three, the first three Romero dead movies. Uh this one, we're in uh, we're in a mine, in a bunker. We are. We're in a bunker with people who uh, just like to yell at each other. Just a whole bunch of people who like to yell at each other. What What's going on with this movie? Let's do a little recap of our series as we wrap it up here, shall we? <laughs> sure.
1: We are uh, celebrating the 50th anniversary of Romero's Dead trilogy. A Night of the Living Dead, of course, came out in 1968. And we are, um, this half of the year looking at films and series that uh, were released in 1968 and celebrating their anniversary. And we're, uh, you know, for better or worse sometimes, in this particular case, we are uh, looking at Romero's original zombie trilogy. And, uh, yeah, we're closing it out with Day of the Dead. We are, here we are. This is 1985. And uh, as you are a child of the 80s,
0: uh, certainly you have some astute way to connect uh, pleated pants uh, and um, this film.
1: <laughs> if there ever was a request <laughs> to connect those two things, I think that might have been the first <laughs> time of it.
0: Uh, <sighs> and, uh, yes, uh, this was uh, this was a film of the eighties, and it felt very much of the eighties. And uh, I, I, but I, I'm having trouble kind of putting my finger on why that is.
1: I, I, I'm not sure. Cause I don't think it felt eighties per se. It, it felt a little dated to me. Um, but not in ways, well, th- this will be an interesting conversation because I, I think this film ended up bothering you more than it did me. Um, but for me, the thing that does date it the most, um, is the music, which feels it, I guess I get what they were going for with it, but it really has that kind of synthesizer. Uh, I mean, it's just that synthesizer keyboard work that all of a sudden sprang into a big popularity uh, kind of in, in the 70s and was really taking off in the 80s. There's some really terrible film scores out there that are just all uh, synthesizer music, um, and this is one of them.
0: I think this film is a case in point that it's hard to make scary movies with these kinds of synthesizer scores, because <laughs> as soon as the movie comes on or the music comes on, I'm not scared anymore. There is no sense of uh, of kind of atmosphere. Uh, in, in fact, I, I think you could say that the score sucks the atmosphere from the movie. It actually sucks it. It drains it. The atmosphere and the life, the beating heart of the movie is sucked from it, thanks to the sounds of the movie, of the
1: music. Well, I mean, I feel like it might be a little harsh, <laughs> but, <laughs> but it definitely is um, a weaker element of it, which is funny because the previous film, Dawn of the Dead, also had some, some library music that had kind of a dated yeah. feel, but... I think because of the context of that one, because it's in a mall and the music kind of had this uh, elevator music vibe to it, it ended up fitting in a way that I feel worked perfectly. In context of what they were doing with the film, which made for this kind of you were put into this place where you're just your mind was numb because you were in this elevator music hell where you basically were becoming a mannequin. (laughs) And I thought that was brilliant in that film. In this particular film, uh, Romero and uh, his composer, um, uh, John Harrison, who coincidentally also was his first A.D., um they had and they'd worked together a number of times before um they were going for kind of a calypso type of music because the f- the story is set in Florida and we have kind of a a a character who is kind of f- from the the Caribbean and it but I don't know why they chose to make that um uh, choice it it's just a strange decision to go that direction with the music so that is one element that i do find i end up struggling with quite a bit because it just doesn't fit with the the tone or um the kind of the military versus science story yeah it really doesn't
0: i have a i certainly have a challenge with that i i want to I and, and I think I'm you're right. I'm being overly harsh on this movie. There were some things that I thought were fun. Um it, it's not the movie that I wanted it to be after the the first two that we saw were that it just felt to me like it was resonant of the time and that we were getting something more than the sum of its kind of gooey parts uh and and that they held up much better than than uh than I expected certainly held up better than this one uh this one I think had a lot of opportunity uh that was just sort of squandered and my biggest problem is that um uh, I lose interest. When they start studying zombies to try to find the the lingering humanity in the zombies, right? The zombies are not individuals. And and that's what they're what is so scary about them, that they are this unstoppable uh, force, right? This unstoppable wave of horror that comes over us. And how we respond as a group is how we move forward as a a civilization. And this movie, they have this Dr. Logan, this Frankenstein, who is doing exactly the thing that I find not scary. He's neutering the zombie as a horror device, in, in my view. And he has created Bub, this zombie that can... Uh, he's working up toward, uh, I guess, frontline technical support. He can pick up a phone and he's reading Stephen King. And I, <laughs> I I totally lose interest in the movie. And because of that, I'm on this roller coaster where every time we go into the Dr. Frankenstein uh, sequence where we're introducing ourselves back to Bub, I tune out. I just I can't. I, I don't like it. It's not scary, and then I have to force myself kind of back into the movie. Oh dear, there's something else going on. Um, what is it that's going on? So I, you know, there are some things in you know when I'm cresting the the rails of the roller coaster that that I think are are pretty solid, but I just don't think that the what they did with the zombie part in the first three quarters of the movie is interesting. Uh, and and I'm I'm gathering that uh, you didn't have that challenge,
1: not really. I mean, I, I I definitely can see where you're coming from with it. I think I feel that for me, um, I like. People exploring zombies in different ways, and I think that this is definitely something that Romero um, really felt with his zombie stories. Because we're going to see more of that when you get to uh, his next film, Land of the Dead, when he finally gets that one made. Because he's really exploring this whole idea with zombies and and that idea of memory. I mean, these were once people, and that's something Romero is really trying to um, get across in his in his films that these. Zombies, uh, they don't really have functional thought anymore, but they do remember things. and I, I I think that's where he's going with Bub here, where Bub is starting to remember things, um even if he isn't really thinking much, although I will say Bub is kind of thinking because he certainly is. Um, getting excited and getting angry, and you know, feeling some emotions and stuff. So, so it's an interesting thing that he's kind of exploring with the zombies, um, and it's really only Bub that 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 is uh, happening with. Even though we do see um, the doctor experimenting on a number of other zombies, which uh, you know, it's it's fun to watch him playing and doing his work. I guess for me, I find that it's 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 the story. It's I feel like there's some intrinsic issues just with the story uh, anyway, even though I really end up enjoying this movie quite a bit. Um, but I feel like there's just so much anger with all the characters, uh, largely, you know, they're trapped in this bunker. So because, much anger. Yeah, because of the this zombie outbreak. And you have the military people who are feeling ineffectual. You have these scientists who are trying to um, figure things out. Um, all kind of under the direction of this Dr. Logan. And nobody really seems to know what he's up to, even though the scientists are a little um, closer to to him and, and working with him on some of the stuff. So, I, I you know, George Romero was going into this film. Um, he was kind of unhappy with society and the way things were i you know some people say he was a little angry at the time with some of the things going on and so he was discontent with the government and the way the institutions were running and so he kind of put that into the film the military was definitely kind of this disintegrating government and these crazy science this crazy scientist this mad doctor was basically this guy who couldn't see this humanity that was left through his own mad experiments and and had kind of lost sight Of the right direction. And I can see what George is doing with them. Um, And I think it's interesting, even if I feel that this story is the one that suffers the most of any of the three films, you have a lot of these these angry characters and they're trapped in this underground, um, this storage bunker. And it just feels like uh, there's not a lot of sense as to what the purpose is down here, what they're trying to do, yes. what is, how is the military trying to help, because uh, it doesn't seem like they're really doing anything. Um,
0: well, and that, that is exactly, that's exactly, uh, I, I think that's the exact same thing about the military, because they, and they, they actually force us as audience members to ask that very question right? When Rhodes says to Steele, get out of there, Steele, we've got better things to do. And, And I can't help but ask myself, what? What do you have to do the only time we see you is you getting in the way of these scientists who are, are ostensibly making an effort to change the world that they live in they're trying to do some things and you have just gone bonkers it is it, it you know at 31 minutes we have the the big showdown scene where Rhodes tells Steele to kill Sarah right and it says you she won't get back in her chair so uh, Steele I want you to kill her and Steele makes a gag, you know, ah, bang, you're dead with his fingers. And Rhodes pulls out his gun and points it now at Steele, one of his own men, and says, you got to kill her right now. You know, it does that whole thing. That whole sequence it absolutely takes me out of the film. It is it is overperformed uh, at its, at, at, you know, at, at the very least. It is the, you know, at the sort of the height of the characters just nonsensically screaming at each other and sometimes screaming at themselves at their own jokes. Uh it, It's and, uh, you know, at its at its worst, it doesn't make any sense to me why they would set up this level of conflict this soon in the film for no reason there's just no reason for Rhodes to be so antagonistic beyond the fact that he's filling the role of the antagonist
1: well and, and i certainly agree with all uh, all of that i do feel as i watch it um, Rhodes is basically a man who has kind of realized that he there's his his um, purpose is gone, like there's not much left. And I feel like he's kind of lost it. I mean, he he comes across as a guy who just has no sense of anything anymore and is is has kind of collapsed internally. And now he's just angry and taking it out on everybody. And so I can see all of that. And I, I guess in my head, I use all of that to, uh, kind of get myself through the story because he is so big and he's so grandiose with everything that he's doing. I just feel like the only logical thing is that he kind of has gone insane because of this whole thing. And, and that makes more sense to me. And then the whole story kind of falls into step a little bit because then it's like, well, if he's the head of this military unit, then all the, all the soldiers under him are going to have to do what he says. Um and so you know i can I can kind of buy into it, even if I feel like some of that is me probably putting it into there that and it may not necessarily have been <laughs> planned that way
0: There are some really nice moments though and i I think once we step away from the military part of it, which I think is the the weaker point for me there's some really nice moments on the with the scientists and I think you, the pilot that you were talking about i mean he has a great little monologue in there you know their bunker in a bunker uh down in their trailer that they've made look like an <laughs> island paradise underground which i think is is really great you know he's talking about uh the you know we that we've been punished by the creator you know he visited a curse on us and he talks about the hopelessness uh, of their cause and i i really like that that sequence i think that's really nice and it comes at a great Part uh, uh, of the film at a great sort of low point for them. And I, I so uh, I, I find some of these little moments really m- moving. Uh, and his character in particular
1: was was a good one. Well, and, and that's definitely the core of the film. You know, uh, you've got insanity basically on both sides with yeah. with Logan. Uh, going crazy doing his experiments and with Rhodes going crazy um, leading his troops. It, it, both of it is it's, uh, it's all gone crazy. And I, I think that that's pretty much what Romero was trying to do. Even if the structure of the story wasn't as strong um, to kind of tell us that to kind of create that world right out of the get uh, right out of the gate w- with the core trio that we have of Sarah, Bill and John, I just really like that group, and I think that uh, they have some really great moments. And the one you just pointed out is fantastic, where where John is having that conversation with Sarah about, you know, you know what's happening and why and all that is fantastic. But also, the moment when, when Sarah has to uh, cut off um, uh, her boyfriend's arm, um, Salazar, and... Um, uh, it breaks down. It's just a really tender moment of, of comfort between John and Sarah. And I really liked that. This was a core element of the film that uh, that helps me really quite a bit get through all of the insanity.
0: And and after that sequence, we go deep into some more insanity. And this is more of the insanity that I, I think I, I'm expecting and looking for. Uh, which is... It, absolutely leaning in on the zombie brawls right oh, uh, where yes. with the people being ripped apart and heads being torn it's just straight off of the bodies and eyeballs and the heads being just split with the shovels and oh dear 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 do they absolutely uh adore uh their the gore in this movie uh, it it takes everything we w- that they've been building from the the two movies prior and and uh, just puts a nice little cherry on top,
1: yeah, good old Tom Savini he really uh, went down with his effects in this particular film and I just I really love it. I think that the gore that he creates here is it, I mean it's gross it's it's heavy. it's for anyone with a, a weak stomach, it's probably too much to watch. but I think it's so creative, it's so fun. It's um it's always he was always trying for something uh you know just different and and playing around with the things that he could do and I just really really enjoy watching all of that stuff. And it's not I I I definitely like the last part of the film when you're really seeing all of that stuff happening. It's just fantastic. There's so much just constantly but even through the beginning of the film with with all of the zombies that uh, that logan is studying and the way that they do those effects and the the guts spilling out and um, i love that word you use i
0: mean heavy that that is a fantastic word to describe it everything has just this grotesque
1: weight yeah it's it really is it's very visceral and uh, you can just tell that stuff is actually there. Like when intestines are spilling out, it's intestines spilling out like actual intestines, like yeah. pig intestines that they used over and over and over again. <laughs> uh, it's just it's fantastic. <laughs> well, the, the, the lengths that they went to.
0: And there's an interesting piece to that. Like uh, this movie has, uh, I, and I don't hasten to say, uh, an upbeat ending. Right. I mean, we we get the sense that that there is a future for our main characters here, at least. And and I I wasn't necessarily expecting that, but it took me a bit to figure out uh, just where the downer ending occurs. And it occurs in the barracks. It occurs down in the in the mine and in the uh, in in the the silos uh, when you have. There's this extended feasting after the captain gets ripped apart, after Rhodes gets ripped apart, uh, where we just have these low, slow tracking shots, sometimes through through these internal windows, sometimes just along the ground, uh, that just moves us through the barracks. It shows the entire place has just been uh, totally and completely dehumanized. (laughs) The zombies have won. They, they. You may, we may get away in the next sequence, but the zombies have won, and uh, we see that by them eating I- in some incredibly grotesque and slow and uh, just almost peaceful way uh, that that uh, I think is is new to this movie that we don't get in in the last one. We certainly don't get in the first one. I just don't think they'd sort of come to terms with with what it would look like for the zombies to completely win and and in this one we we see what that looks like we see when when all the humans are gone all the the you know all the non zombies are gone and this is what a feast looks like it's terrible
1: yeah it's it's pretty pretty bloody and uh and gory and it's just it is the end of things i think that it's a it's a really interesting element that you have at the end of this that just kind of that does allow you to linger on this place that we've spent the last hour and a half in just basically uh, lost to the humans it's no longer theirs
0: well and and what do you think of the actual uh, uh, location
1: it's an amazing amazing location that they uh, that they filmed in this was a uh, it's I, I know that there are these places around uh, around the world where it's like a a, a former limestone um, Uh, Mine that was turned into uh, because of its constant temperature in there, it was basically turned into like this big storage facility and all sorts of things. It sounds like a lot of people would store their boats in there and stuff because they didn't want their boats to be, um, you know, getting, uh, affected too much by the, the changing winter weather and everything. So they'd put all sorts of stuff in there. They actually built this huge thing out. And I mean, it's in, it's this, uh, near Wampum, Pennsylvania and the camera, I think it's just called like the Wampum mine or something like that. And it is a really amazing location. And I think they did a lot of work to, um, to kind of explore through through quite a bit of it. It's just a really interesting location. It is wonderful, and there are some great uh, uh, videos,
0: just photographers and videographers who have gotten these wonderful tours that are up on YouTube, so you can go, like, look through and, and f- get this sort of first-person trip through Wampum Underground Storage and uh, see exactly where this, this whole film uh, was shot. It's very... It's very cool. Uh, Apparently, it runs at a constant 50 degrees in there, uh, as you say, like it's one of those um one of those places that you know you don't have to worry about heat or extreme cold uh getting at your stuff but you can also uh rent warehouse space or like office space and so you get these this underground secure 24 7 card access low utility cost high proximity to highways and then go have meetings there <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> the conference rooms and chandeliers and the walls on all of the conference rooms are Limestone like it is is the coolest looking place uh, that you can imagine. The facility is just amazing, uh, and uh, it's, it's totally retrofit. So um, I guess definitely it- check it out. You can you can find it at WampumUnderground now and uh, see the vehicle storage and warehousing and office space, and it's very cool.
1: And I guess that because they were in this cave system for such a long period of time, they basically would get there in the dark in the morning, work all day in the dark, and they'd leave and it would be dark outside. They uh, were all running into health issues because they were in this cave for such a long period of time. They had to have a doctor on set getting, kind of giving, I think, vitamin uh, vitamin B shots or vitamin D shots. and um, but still, like, it was just, it was really hard on their systems and something that uh, you should remember before you set up office there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, that's that's a good note. Nowhere <laughs> on the website does it talk about these potential health concerns. Right. <laughs> you should
1: watch that. <laughs> also, zombies. Just in case. Right. Yeah. They also filmed in uh, Fort Myers, Florida, uh, at the very beginning uh, with all the scenes uh when they land and they're trying to find survivors and you have the 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 zombie horde coming out, uh including the uh alligator or the crocodile. I'm not sure which one it is. But uh the two uh trainers are behind it as as zombies. They're, they're the were... ones kind of stumbling out. Exactly. But I guess when they were unloading it when they first got there, um the the alligator uh slipped out of the truck and landed on its nose and so it's got a bloody nose and so you can see that when it's coming out of the bank it's got like red on its face and at first i thought that i'm like did they just like leave its mouth tied shut so that it wouldn't bite anybody but it's actually just blood for the oh the poor creature wow that's horrible i know i know this was back in in the day when uh, Savini and his team, I mean, they were still kind of working on this indie level with Romero. And also, I just don't think they had... Um, thought things through maybe as well as people do nowadays because when they were done at the end of the day they would just tell the zombies uh okay we'll just take your stuff off and the zombies would be left to their own devices to like peel all of the latex off of their skin and everything and like you know damaging their skin that stuff is really hard to get off and uh I mean, nowadays, if you're taking that sort of stuff off, there's a, a makeup crew member there who's helping pull it off very carefully to make sure your skin doesn't get injured. And they were just sending these people home to do it themselves. And people were ending up with all sorts of sores on their faces and everything. And some people were so, um, you know, they were done at the end of the day and they would just drive home in their makeup. And uh, after a few scares, I guess, at some uh, at some uh, um, toll booths and stuff, uh, they had to instart instill a new rule. That you had to take your makeup off before you left set. Uh, Lori Cardley plays Sarah, and
0: uh, she says that. Uh, and I think that's one of the, one of the things that's great about this film and her portrayal of it is that it is she's not uh, a a sexed protagonist, right? She's yeah. she is a, a strong and intelligent scientist, and she's portrayed that way. And the, as she tells it, uh, you, anytime she you know, tried to insinuate more of an emotional tone in the film, George would, would tell her to rein it in that, that he really wanted her to be the, you know, a, a model of strength. And I think that also makes that breakdown you mentioned earlier after the, you know, when she, the shock of what she had just done to her, you know, her, her bow um, taking his arm off like that with the machete when, when she breaks down and, and we get to see that shock, it makes that a, a more, compelling portrayal a more interesting portrayal because it's really the only time we get to
1: see her break down uh in in this movie it, it is it becomes a very powerful moment and it's interesting her character is such an interesting one because she also is the only human uh female and she goes through some really difficult situations like abusive situations from from the people that she's working with, um, you know, almost getting shot by the crazy military guys. And then even her boyfriend kind of freaks out on her and starts hitting her at one point. I mean, she goes through a lot. And the way that she handles herself is really a, a kind of a a figure of strength. And uh, I think that it was really interesting to see how she portrayed that and handled those moments that that happened, as difficult as they were. I, I really enjoyed uh, what she did here and and I don't think I know I've seen Lori in some other films, but um, this is the only one that really stands out and, and opposite her literally opposite. We have Joseph Pilato as as Rhodes,
0: uh, the the captain and um, he was this is this is pretty new uh, act this whole uh, I, I don't want to say acting thing, but certainly in, in his uh, film role, he was in Dawn of the Dead uh he had a a bit part as a a police officer um in dawn of the dead and then immediately after that he was in a film with tom savini called effects which i have not seen and uh uh, and then he was given essentially this
1: yeah and this was uh well and he was in uh night riders also right Uh, right that's true yeah and so so he's i i feel like people who are in Romero's circle, whether it's crew or cast, end up kind of continuing to come back to, uh, to him in various projects. And so he's, he's one of those guys and I, he was a theater actor. He had done a lot of stuff, um, on stage. And, uh, I, I think you can get a sense of that from some of the bigness of his performance as Rhodes. Um, but I, uh, man, I tell you, as crazy as he is, I end up really liking him. He's just a loon, but he's so much uh, fun to watch. He's, you know, I I think it's just because he becomes that guy who is so funny because his stuff is so big and so crazy that uh, I kind of end up really like His stuff sticks in my head probably more than anyone else's. Well, it certainly makes
0: his ultimate demise that much better for me. I I don't I'm not on uh, Team Andy (laughs) on this one in particular. I find the uh, the the sort of theatricality, the strength of his performance is just makes it overdone in this movie. And and it less sinister, just like he's not a sinister antagonist. And I think he really we, we miss that uh in, in this movie he doesn't he doesn't add to the the sort of fear factor of just this is another thing and you can tell because she doesn't even take him seriously through most of the movie he becomes just sort of a, this comical you know nut job and so i'm i'm not well, crazy about him but i do love how he goes and there are some wonderful just the 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 way that sequence was shot with all the hands and when the doors open and he is just sort of subsumed uh by
1: you know the zombies i i think that's a very strong ending yeah and uh, i w- i want to come back to that cuz it's a fun story but i i i, I struggle with I, I mean i get what you're saying but at the same time it's like i feel like he is a really frightening threat because he's so off his rocker that you kind of you kind of dismiss him because he's off his rocker but at the same time when all of a sudden he's saying uh you know steal, shooter and and then he's pointing the gun. And still, all of a sudden, I'm like, wow, hold on. Now, I don't know. This guy, all of a sudden, is a lot more dangerous than I had given him credit for. And I I think that's the stuff that I find really interesting with Rhodes. Because he's so crazy that you don't buy it until, all of a sudden, there are weapons pointed at you. And I thought that was actually a really interesting um, element of his character. But But when did that ever pay off? Like... You know, if
0: he's going to be a threat like that. I think it totally pays
1: off. He he blows the guy.
0: He shoots the guy. Fisher. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's true. He shoots Fisher. Yeah. I don't know. I just feel like it ended up with so many standoff situations with him that I I just never found him uh, kind of a compelling antagonist like it was always like so let's just raise our guns again vomit and scream and and it was just uh, it was just kind of a one-trick pony uh, you're right we do
1: get a, a little bit of a peak but and, and I mean and I'm not completely disagreeing with you it's not the it's not handled as strongly as it it uh, could have been
0: yeah, and by the same token, we have. Uh, speaking of one trick ponies, we have you know Logan, uh, Doctor Frankenstein, uh, played by Richard Liberty, who um, is a stereotype of a stereotype of a stereotype of himself. Um, <laughs> he is he's this just nutso doctor. He's doing his own thing, and it turns out, uh, lo and behold, he's doing something nobody understands and nobody agrees with. And um, I and and I just I, I found that. A less compelling uh narrative argument for the movie,
1: well, and that's the one that I would agree with you more like i I like Rhodes a lot more than I like Logan. I think okay, I think Logan <laughs> it's a little a little too kooky, like I yeah. enjoy what uh, Romero was going for by making this kind of mad scientist who's kind of gone past the point of of logic with his experimentation. I think that there's some really frightening stuff that he's doing. And and the experiments, I think, are really horrifying. Um, but I don't feel like the way that he played it, the way that some of the stuff plays out with, with him and Bob, I, I end up struggling with it quite a bit. Even though I like Bob and I like what they're doing, I just I, I, and I don't know if it's Richard Liberty or if it's the script or both that I end up struggling with. But that's the one that I end up having some more issues with.
0: You know, I think they missed a, a great opportunity in the script by giving Logan both the mad scientist, uh, you know, vivisection doctor, and the the kind of uh, I, I don't know what to say, speech path role, right? Speech path psychologist role of communication. Uh, I, I think they should have separated that and given the whole Bub storyline, assuming that they're all in on it, to her. Because to Sarah, I think she would have been a much more interesting uh, foil to discover that they have this communication piece, and we still have this crazy Richard Liberty as Logan, who's doing his who's doing his nuts out thing, maybe learning something about the brain along the way and destroying these these things along the way, uh, but but spreading the the love of discovery uh, across uh, a couple of other folks in the on Team Science, I think would have been would have been more interesting and prevented him from having to carry all that weight
1: well and i'm I'm really curious because this this script when romero first crafted it it was a very long script it was i believe over 200 pages um he had written like five different drafts of it and uh he had issues with his uh with his um uh, his executive producer who was funding the project for him who um wouldn't give him the money that he needed because Romero was really uh reticent to release it with a rating he really preferred having the freedom of the, of what an unrated film allowed and so his budget was like half of what he needed to really make it and so he had to cut like 100 pages out of his script and uh, and really rework it now he says that the script that he ended up making was basically kind of his uh, the script that he was happy with. It it told the complete story, but um, I, I can't help but feel that somewhere in the the translation from the long version to a much shorter version, that some of these characters ended up. Um, we lost opportunities to kind of clean some of that up and, and we lost some of the threads that probably would have helped make some of this have a better, uh, better logic.
0: Well, didn't he, I mean, he, he called this his aspiration here that he wanted to make the gone with the wind of zombie movies, right? This, this is not the budget that makes that movie.
1: No. And, uh, and that's, yeah, I think that's uh, why he was, uh, I think frustrated with the fact that yeah. he didn't get the money that he was, he was really hoping for. Um, right. and, and, you know, when you have to cut, uh, a lot out, yeah, you're going to lose a lot of the, uh, the, uh, effect of some of the, those story elements.
0: Uh, a couple of more folks in the cast that I definitely want to talk about. Um, we uh, do, who's who's high on your list because mine are minor smaller characters.
1: We already mentioned John and Bill, but I really do enjoy uh, those two, Terry Alexander and Charles Conroy. Um I just feel like there's a really interesting personality with those two. Um and he, even uh uh Tony DeLeo who who plays uh Salazar, his uh her kind of her boyfriend. I think those are really interesting, but I think the one that I really enjoy the most is even though um you really struggle with the character. Um, I, I struggle with some of the elements of it because of the relationship with Logan, but I really enjoy Bub, and I enjoy Sharon Howard portraying him, even if it's a little illogical. I think that it's such a fascinating character, and I really enjoy watching Bub every time he's on screen. Oh, Andy, when he salutes,
0: <laughs> he salutes at the end. Uh, really? Really? Oh. oh, so dumb! <laughs> so dumb. Uh real highlight for me though is seeing Greg Nicotero as Johnson in this thing. Greg Nicotero uh, ends up dying in the cave. He gets shot uh, when Miller gets his neck chewed off. Uh, Miller his gun goes off and and ends up shooting Greg Nicotero. Why is Greg Nicotero important in the genre? Well, this, it turns out, was his first assistant job. He was working for Tom Savini, and he went on from there to make a lot of other epic makeup movies. Uh, he's His name is on the credits of 178 other makeup movies, in fact, and he went from consulting producer through co-executive producer to executive producer to just plain owner of The Walking Dead and Fear the Walking Dead. It's that Greg Nicotero. I was so excited to see his name in this movie uh because it just feels like the circle of life i wanted to sing that song <laughs> uh, <laughs> so it was great
1: it is pretty fantastic to see him popping up uh you know as uh, kind of an assistant here and and getting to dig in and i mean there a lot of the the makeup effects guys that were working with tom savini ended up Kind of continuing in this uh, in this world, and did quite yeah. a bit of stuff after this. But it is well, nice and to you see can Greg- see the
0: family. You can definitely see it if you click through the the uh, IMDb credits of pretty much any of the featured zombies. They were also on the makeup team and uh, it ended up, you know, uh, developing quite fantastic careers uh, yeah. as a result of of this trajectory. It was very cool. Yeah, absolutely. Don Brockett uh, was a featured zombie, and I was very excited about seeing just his name. I couldn't pick him out. I don't know who he was, uh, what kind of hero shot he got. But he was Chef Brockett and Mr. Bulldog and Santa Claus and so much more on Mr. Rogers. Uh, he did 135 episodes between 68 and 95. And it somehow delights me
1: that he was also a featured zombie in this movie. That's hilarious. hilarious. So hilarious. good. So good. One uh, last little note that I had for the cast, Lori uh, Cardilly, who is Sarah, her father is uh, Bill Chilly Billy Cardilly, who was one of the reporters in Night of the Living Dead. He was a That's Pittsburgh TV right. personality and and now his daughter was uh, connected with the franchise, which I thought was kind of fun. How sweet.
0: As long as we've been uh, talking a little bit about uh, gore and Nicotero, we got to talk more about Tom Savini again on makeup effects uh, with Terry Prince on zombie background masks and Tom Savini in particular talking about Rhodes's death.
1: This is one of those um, moments in the film where it really has kind of become a uh, a story that, if you know anything about uh, movie gore and movie makeup, this is one of those stories that inevitably you're going to hear about because it's just one of the more famous ones. This uh, moment when Rhodes gets torn apart by the zombies in just the most fantastically awful way, where his guts are getting pulled out and the zombies are just chewing on every little piece of him, and he's screaming. It's just—it's so fantastic, and it's so disgusting. In in all the all the best Tom Savini ways, this was the same uh, construction on on his torso that they had used on the first zombie that we see in Frankenstein's lab when he kind of sits up and all the guts spill out on the floor. Mm-hmm. Um, we also see when uh, when Sarah is having a one of her dreams where she keeps seeing zombies and we see uh, we see um, her boyfriend sit up and all of his guts spill out. That was all the same bucket of pig guts that they had been using and they they kept putting the back in the bucket and putting it in the fridge. Well, <laughs> the crew <laughs> flew down to Florida to shoot all the Florida stuff um, and when they came back up, this was the last thing that they needed to get done but somebody had unplugged the fridge and and so they but and it was like the middle of the night they had no way to go get another bucket of pig guts and they had to shoot so they had to use the they, Romero says that the smell was so powerful that you could smell it like hallways away before you even got to the room that had the fridge of rotting pig guts oh,
0: god and
1: they had to shoot with it and so all of the zombies got like little wax plugs in their nose and everything so they didn't have to smell it. But poor Joseph Pilato, who is lying there, he um, he had to lay there with it. and you, you were seeing basically up his nose, so he couldn't have plugs in his nose or anything. And they told him before he came in, they said, whatever you do, do not eat anything or drink anything before you come in today because you will lose all of it. And so he had to lie there oh, and have this thing, and he had to like just try to breathe uh, through his mouth without smelling anything. The zombies were trying to fan stuff away from him. and they had they shot it with three cameras and they got it in one take, luckily, but still, he was there for like four hours while they were getting it built and everything and uh, getting it prepped. and And he said, when he was screaming, um, and when he took that big breath, He said he just almost lost everything right there. It was so bad. I just can't even imagine. But uh, it's one of those stories that, you know, you'll always have. He says he can still smell it. (laughs) Oh, God. I don't care for that story at all. (laughs) Because, you know, it's little pieces.
0: It's little pieces. When you smell it, it's little pieces of spoiled pig guts in your nose. That's how that works. And it's terrible uh, and it's making me, it's making all the hair stand up on my neck. Rotten
1: pig guts. mm, Rotten pig guts. Yep. I don't care for it, that story. (laughs) You can taste it right now, can't you? Stop it. Shut up.
0: (laughs) Oh, Mm. good times. Good times. In other news, John Harrison's Disco synth synth
1: score is pretty great. Oh don't yes, you don't you think? <laughs> yes, back God. to John Harrison. You know, it's funny. He is—he's one of those guys who I—I uh, I think he just kind of came up in the ranks through Romero because he was his first AD, and he was also composing. He did the music and first AD work on Creep Show, and then he kind of turned into kind of a producer director. He went on to direct a bunch of stuff for TV, including the Dune miniseries on Sci-Fi Channel, which actually I thought was. Was quite good. So, um, and we actually have seen him before. He was the screwdriver zombie in Dawn of the Dead, the one who gets that screwdriver in his ear. That's right. And we talked specifically about how great he took that screwdriver so slowly, (laughs) right in the
0: head. Uh, That's right. And you know, speaking of one that, uh, another one that came up in the ranks. Here's an interesting one: Pasquale Buba was uh, he was one of the bikers in Dawn of the Dead, and he went on to edit this film. And you know where he went after that? After some other years went by? Uh, he edited Heat, which we've talked about on this show. Was that's terrific. amazing. It was just amazing. Is amazing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so there we go. So that's uh, that, that's the movie. And that's where we land on this. Now, of course, there are other movies in this series uh, that we are not talking about. That's right. So it's, uh, Romero went on and
1: did more. He did. He did um, his second trilogy, which started in 2005. That was Land of the Dead, Diary of the Dead, and Survival of the Dead. I've only seen two of the three, um, but I'm curious about um, the rest of them. And, and supposedly, there are two more that are in the works. I'm really curious to see uh, if those two get off the ground um, since uh, Romero passed away wow. <laughs> and what's interesting is that's that's just this particular franchise that's not to mention other stories like there was a prequel to this film called day of the dead 2 contagium which was released in 2005 and i guess it's an official sequel because Taurus entertainment company actually holds the rights to this film um, but nobody was actually involved in it so it's so funny how the rights for romero's little films just nobody can seems to to be able to hold on to them very well right. um there was a loose remake of this film released straight to dvd in 2008 ving rames interestingly was in that so that was uh you know I, I don't think he played the same character that he was in in the dawn of the dead remake but it's interesting that he's bo- in both of those and then supposedly there was going to be another remake of this called day of the dead bloodline and so it's it's interesting that uh it's just it's a franchise that really spurs on people's um, creativity, and they just they want more. They want more zombies.
0: Now, wasn't Day of the Dead? Didn't that uh, Day of the Dead Bloodline? Did that not get released? That it was, was it. Was released, released January fifth, two thousand eighteen. Yeah,
1: just this year. Yeah. Well, uh,
0: clearly, I need to see that.
1: Yeah, you'll have to.
0: Did this? How this one do at, at
1: awards season? Well, we talked about. Um, this not really being the type of uh, franchise that's going to get a lot of awards, except for people like Tom Savini, this did win a Saturn Award for him at the Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Films. The good old Saturn Awards, he did win an award there, which uh, was great to see. And that was um, opposite Enemy Mine, Explorers, Reanimator, and The Return of the Living Dead. Interesting, Return of the Living Dead. If I recall,
0: that has some of the very similar themes right that's the one where we have the we actually have the the zombie on the gurney talk about the, the her love for brains
1: they are talking yeah they talk they say brains yeah. brains yeah that was a very big thing and, that, well and, they, and
0: it, because the, she says she says why do you do it because why do you eat the yeah. brains because it, it it because of the pain yeah it's it the pain right yeah <laughs> right uh yeah, I, I didn't like that. I didn't uh, care for that.
1: It's a it's a fun one. Well it's it's so interesting because that whole franchise, that's the one that John Russo, who worked with Romero on Night of the Living Dead, they had their creative differences and he went yeah. off to do The Living Dead and Romero stuck with the dead, and that's kind of the the two paths and Russo had written the um Return of the Living Dead and then Dan O'Bannon from the Alien uh uh, film, He ca- went on to direct it this same year, and it actually came out just a few weeks after this one.
0: How uh, did it, it do uh, relatively at the box
1: office? Well, Romero wanted, as I said earlier, he wanted $7 million to make this movie. But his executive producer would only give him that much if he didn't go the unrated route. And he really wanted to stick with the gore. So Romero made this final film of his trilogy for $3.5 million, which is about $7.8 million in today's dollars. The movie was released July 19th, 1985, opposite the E.T. reissue, The Legend of Billie Jean, and one of my guilty pleasures, Tom Hanks' The Man with One Red Shoe. It also opened, as I just mentioned, just about a month ahead of John Russo's own zombie follow-up to their first film, Return of the Living Dead. The film grossed $5.8 million domestically and $28.2 million internationally, making a grand total in today's dollars of $34 million. Interestingly, uh, it was not as popular as its predecessor and definitely not as popular as The Return of the Living Dead, which actually uh, made three times what this did at the box office. But still, this was uh, successful, making an adjusted profit per finished minute of $676,000. Romero wouldn't return to the zombie films for 20 years after this, but his success with this original trilogy certainly set set the stage for his opportunity to do so.
0: Rightfully so. I, uh, you know, even though I have some problems with what this movie is doing and is not doing, uh, I I there's I I definitely have some fun with it, and I really have fun with this trilogy. Uh, and and I'm I'm thinking we might need to come back to it, uh, come back to the
1: well here at some point. What'd you think? How'd you feel about doing this original three? I have never watched all three of them back to back. I had only seen them uh, randomly because uh, I knew they're not connected. It's not the same characters. It's not. You know, nothing is tied together. And so it's not like you have to watch them in order or anything like that. But I just found myself really appreciating, um, just all the, uh, kind of uh, craziness that Romero was instilling in this, uh, post-apocalyptic, uh, world that was overrun by zombies. I had a lot of fun with it. And so I, um, uh, definitely, um, am wanting to revisit this whole trilogy in the future because it's just, um really gory fun. I think so too. And with that, I think we ought to rank it. Let's do it. Head
0: over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see all the movies we've talked about on this show or you can just swipe over in your show notes, tap flickchart and it will take you directly to this film where you can add it to your list and see how it stacks up against ours. First up, Day of the
1: Dead or Numi's The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, please. Yeah, I think I'll say Dragon Tattoo as well. Day of the Dead or Christmas in July. Seems rude. That is such a delightful film. I have to go with Christmas in July. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, me too. I want Day to be higher, but I can't put it higher over that one. Day of the Dead or The Emigrants. I will say Day of the Dead. I will also say Day of the Dead. Day of the Dead or Postmortem. Day of the Dead for me. Day of the Dead. Interestingly, both of them could be titled (laughs) Postmortem. Uh, Day of the Dead or Star Trek 5, The Final Frontier. Day of the Dead. Nice I, Day of the Dead. It's You know, I did enjoy that movie so much more than I had remembered. But then I think of the Cat Lady. <laughs> <laughs> That's what pushes you over the edge? <laughs> In this particular case. Uh, Day hmm. of the Dead or Alien 3. Was that the prison one? That's the prison one. It's David Oh, no, 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 no. Alien 3. Definitely Alien 3. <laughs> Day of the Dead or Clute. I'm Clute. Clute, yeah. 100%. Day of the Dead or The Game. Definitely The Game. The Game. Day of the Dead or Seconds. I'm definitely Seconds. Seconds? This is easier than I expected it to be. It really was. Day of the Dead landed at 293 on our chart. Wow. 293 out of 375. It's about a 22% lower than I would like. But again, we've talked about a lot of really good movies.
0: How did it? What did it do on your uh, personal chart?
1: My personal chart, it landed at 883 out of 4056, which is about 78%.
0: Well, mine landed disappointingly at 815 out of 1043, uh, which puts it if I go by the algorithm, uh, this should be a one star film. Ouch. Uh, over at slash the next reel. I'm, I'm not doing that. It's a better film for me than that. I I think I'm going to be a solid two and a half
1: uh, over at Letterboxd. Two and a half. And is that two and a half with a like? Um, Are you a like? (laughs) I am. Am I going to average up or down is what I want to know.
0: I think it it doesn't matter, but I think I'll probably give it a like because of my affinity for the series. Well, I'm a four star and a like. That feels aggressively high. I but then I'm a five star and a like of First Man, so I don't really have room to talk.
1: I, I just I I know I have issues with this film, but this is one of those movies that when I watch it, I I end up just smiling through it because it's just so crazy, and so I end up having. A lot of fun watching this one, and i I feel like I have it's. I feel like it's actually gotten more enjoyable for me every time I've watched it. So <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> it's one of I those I do
0: have a problem with their primary entrance to this thing, to their bunker. Like the only way they could get in is taking this giant flat elevator with like this 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 like it's like that cargo elevator. Yeah, right. With with no windows to get outside, and I love that it's this, it's this stupid thing that you know as you're watching the movie, this is a stupid thing. And then they actually play out what happens when you discover just how stupid it is. And they lower the elevator and all the zombies are standing on it. I think that is
1: so good. I think that's a great visual too. Such <laughs> such I can, can only imagine standing there watching that thing descend just loaded down to zombies. Well,
0: and, the, and because Steel is there with his buddies and it just looks like it, it looks like a scene out of three's company like oh my god jack and chrissy they're there and they have to run down the hallway and get out because of the oh god <laughs> it's just too much it really
1: well it's but and it's an interesting setup for that too uh, not to yeah. continue belaboring the point but just but having uh the the amputee you know go basically uh <laughs> start that that thing by by sacrificing yeah. himself there so it's kind of an interesting little moment
0: Uh, And there we go. And that is the end of our discussion of Romero's dead movies. And that means we get to move on,
1: Uh, moving on to another. uh, I I guess you could call this a franchise that started in 1968. It is that we're kicking it off with um, Once Upon a Time in the West. It is a, uh, I guess we're calling it um, Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time trilogy. We're going to be looking at Once Upon a Time in the West. We're going to be looking at Duck You Sucker, a.k.a. A Fistful of Dynamite, a.k.a. uh, Once Upon a Time in, uh, I think it's called Once Upon a Time in the Revolution. Um, I I don't know. It's a weirdly forced title to squeeze it into this trilogy once
0: upon a time in the revolution
1: and then there's uh, once upon a time in america which is the one that we will be wrapping up this next trilogy with
0: are all of these movies epic big movie i think they all pretty much are right they they're are, all, yeah. Once Upon a Time in the
1: West is just under three hours. Uh, Duck, You Sucker is... Uh, yeah, looks 157 like 157 minutes. 157 minutes. And what's Upon a Time in America, uh, if we're watching the most recently restored edition, which is the extended director's cut, I think it's like four hours long. It is yeah, two. Oh, massive. Oh, look at that. 229.
0: 139 minutes U.S. release, 229 minutes European release. I don't yeah, know. The extended that's director's big.
1: cut is a uh, it's a hefty beast, and that's what I'm going right. to look at.
0: So quit your jobs, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and and that's it. I'm actually I'm very excited to look at these movies, uh, and uh, we'll be clearly uh, putting in some late nights. But also, Ennio Morricone is back, and he's not making <laughs> stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Oh, I don't mean, Not that I'm oh, holding a grudge over uh-huh. the ridiculous uh-huh. tripe.
1: Well, if you want to hear more of us, and uh, whether it's about <laughs> Neomar <Marconi's>, danger uh, Dangerous <laughs> Diabolic Music or not, but you can't wait until next week's show, you can support us over on patreon.com slash thenextreel and get access to our exclusive members-only weekend show, The Saturday Matinee. We talk about movie news
0: and new trailers, plus we go head-to-head in our weekly challenge, in which we put together lists of movies related
1: in some way to the movie we're discussing that week. There are all sorts of other goodies, too, if you support us at different levels. Just head on over to patreon.com slash thenextreel. You can learn more about us and check out the detailed show notes at thenextreel.com. You can subscribe for free in your favorite podcast app and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at thenextreel. And if you want to get into the conversation yourself, join our Discord channel for a whole
0: lot of movie chat with movie lovers from around the world. You can find the link to join in the show notes or on the
1: website. The next reel couldn't happen without the hard work of Stephen Smart running Instagram. Ben Lott runs all things Twitter. And thanks to Eli Catlin, who graciously allows us to use his song Ragtime Instrumental as the theme to the show. You can find out more about Eli on his SoundCloud page. When the movie ends, our conversation begins.
0: Amazon giveth, Andrew. As Amazon always doeth. Amazon does come through for us. Uh, I I think this week we have an insightful uh, uh, post from M.S. Swanson back in 2002, who watched this film on DVD. When I first saw this one back in 85, I was absolutely trembling with anticipation. Dawn of the Dead was one of my favorite movies and we had watched it on a Sony Betamax at least 20 times. Fangoria had hyped the heck out of day and the gore looked incredible. Well, the gore is gory, but the movie bites the big one. Awful characters played by amateur actors constantly arguing and yelling at each other. A villain so evil that he sneers every line of dialogue and scowls every time he's on camera. Never seen him in a movie since. I wonder why. The whole thing with Bub and the mad scientist was laughably laughable. Actually, the whole thing is a waste. Romero should have waited until he had enough money to do it right. After the opening credits, the entire movie is filmed in an underground bunker. And yes, the claustrophobia is contagious. I was out of my seat and into the sunshine before you could say missed opportunity. Boom.
1: Wow. Missed
0: opportunity. <laughs> I guess what do you, I'm going to mark that as helpful. Do you know who else <laughs> marked that one as helpful? Eight other people. Eight people found that review helpful. And now it's
1: nine now it's nine well i've got one pete that has 10 people who have said it's helpful (gasps) actually i don't know if i should say that i i I take that back three people found it helpful 10 people commented oh yeah those are very different things different (laughs) yes but this is by bonnie dean who screams it in all caps says i want my money back for this one i loved the night (laughs) and dawn of This one had such bad language, I could not watch it. I love blood and guts, but that little four-letter word, you know which one, really puts me off. (laughs) What I enjoy most about this is you get a fantastic bunch of comments, uh, one of which says... um, the reviewer is nuts. I don't mind shooting, beheading, eating guts, dissection, and rotting corpses, chasing people, but just don't say a naughty word? Seriously? So, what do you say when marooned in an outpost with the same people for over a year, hordes of zombies wanting to eat you alive or turn you into one of them, and you lose your temper? Oh, poot. Those dad blamed zombies are after <laughs> us again. <laughs> oh, poot. <laughs> Oh, (laughs) Oh,
0: that's good. Thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022,